Good morning. Uh, today is a text we might prefer to skip. Um, many of us have heard this story of Sodom and Gomorrah taught a few different ways. Um, we've maybe heard it taught as God's absolute uh, and zealous intolerance for sexual sin. Uh, this story has been used to declare certain sexual sins as different or worse than other sexual sins. Or maybe we've heard it taught as how wrathful and vindictive God is. Uh, that he's sitting in heaven waiting to obliterate human beings. The fire and brimstone imagery depicting an angry God, it comes directly from this story. Uh, or maybe we've heard this taught with an emphasis on Lot's wife. Right? See what happened to her? Beware, could be you. In other words, most of us have heard this story taught to instill fear, to show the wrath of a holy God, to show us what could happen if we don't toe the line. Um, the words Sodom and Gomorrah elicit strong negative reactions. Even many with very little exposure to the Bible have an understanding of the Christian God shaped by this story, or at least by the words Sodom and Gomorrah. And unfortunately, some followers of Jesus have seemed to derive pleasure from the perceived judgment it is to even say Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not a story I enjoy reading over and over. It was not particularly fun to study. Uh, it's hard and uncomfortable to read about mobs and sexual violence. It's hard to read about physical and spiritual blindness. It's hard to read about judgment and destruction. But as I kept reading, I realized... I've made some assumptions. I've assumed this chapter stands alone. And I know it's nested within the larger story of Abraham and Genesis, the Pentateuch, the whole Bible. But I can too easily read this story as a self-contained story, divorced from the broader narrative, separate from the intentional way God is weaving the Bible together. And taken out of context, this story can do great damage. It can center Lot when it isn't really about Lot. And it can paint an inaccurate picture of God. There are very, very few stories in the Bible that we can actually read in isolation. With all of its genres, all of its seemingly separate stories, the Bible's one book telling one story. And when we zoom in too narrowly on a particular story, our understanding of the big picture can become distorted. We can miss the broader message. So our text today is a perfect illustration of how necessary it is to let the whole text influence our reading and interpretation of one story. So we are not meeting Lot or hearing about Sodom and Gomorrah for the first time or the last time here in Genesis 19. The story does not exist in isolation. So we actually met Lot one verse after Abram back in Genesis 11. Lot has been part of Abram's story all along. Of course, he's a very small part. But we learned early on that he is Abram's nephew, and he, along with his grandfather, they set out with Abram and Sarai from Ur toward Canaan. In Genesis 12, God made a covenant with Abram, not Lot. God commanded Abram to leave his homeland. He promised to make Abram into a great nation, to bless those who bless him, to dishonor those who curse him, and to bless all people through him. And in Genesis 12:4, right after that first mention, we're told, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Lot is right there. And he is not just following along and being supported by Abram. Lot is wealthy, independent of Abram. After the famine and sojourn in Egypt, in Genesis 13, we're told Abram and Lot's possessions are so great, the land could not support both men's households. 
So to keep the peace and to provide for each of them, Abram tells Lot to pick what land will be his, and Abram will take what's left. Genesis 13, verses 10 through 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Can you see our assumptions beginning to form here? There is foreshadowing and foreboding. Aside from Lot's apparent selfishness in choosing the visually preferable land, there are clues Lot is headed in a bad direction. If this was a movie, the music just took a decided turn and a sinister wind blew a tumbleweed across the screen, right? We are anticipating a bad ending. God is specifically sending Abram somewhere, but Lot appears to be making his own choices and going where he wants and doing what he wants. So can we assume at this point, Lot knows how wicked and sinful the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are? It seems reasonable he might have heard rumors, But the information we are reading in chapter 13, that was for the original audience, Abraham's descendants. It was not written as Lot made his choices. We are reading a historical retelling, not breaking news. By chapter 14, Lot is a city dweller. He is living in Sodom. When war breaks out, his family and all his possessions and all his people are seized. It's only Uncle Abram's intervention that rescues Lot. Any of that make Lot realize that maybe Sodom wasn't the dream home he'd anticipated? We can only assume, because after Lot is rescued, the story zooms in on Abram, who becomes Abraham. In chapter 17, the sign of the covenant happens. Abraham, Ishmael, and the men of Abraham's household are circumcised. Lot is never mentioned. We have no evidence Lot is part of this covenant. And maybe that causes us to assume something about Lot's character. Maybe we assume physical, relational, and spiritual distance between Lot and Abraham, Abraham, and between Lot and God. So in chapter 18, when we learn there's been an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, that their sin is very grave, what do we assume about Lot? It's interesting that we don't assume Lot is crying out. At least I've never heard anyone assume that. We don't know who or what is crying out, As Darren said last week, we know that outcry. It indicates grief and injustice and a need for deliverance. And we know God heard. Too often, we miss what God hears. God always hears the outcry against sin. Look at Genesis 18, 20 through 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Our God is not a God of assumptions. God never assumes. He hears the outcry and goes to look. He does not make hasty decisions based on hearsay. He is not emotionally reactive. He does not judge on assumptions. He is a God who knows, who acts, and wisely and justly. Now, God knows all. He does not have to go look. But how reassuring must that have been for Abraham? And how reassuring is it for us to know God never assumes? 
He knows with certainty. He acts justly and wisely. This is a thread we see woven all through the text of the Bible if we zoom out and look at the broader narrative. But knowing that, we still make assumptions about what this says about Lot. Even Abraham appeared to make some assumptions. At the end of chapter 18, we saw that in Abraham's interaction with God. He's very aware of Sodom's reputation. And he is desperate for any who are righteous to be spared. But he is not confident that there are very many. Uh, Look at our text today, Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. Throughout the Bible, elders and judges sit in the city gate. Has Lot moved from pitching his tent near Sodom to living in Sodom to being a leader in Sodom? We can only assume. Verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. This is a mob. Imagine being in that house with a mob of all of the men of the city surrounding you. It must have been terrifying. Imagine being in that mob. Do you know why you're there? Are you just going along with the energy and emotion of the crowd? What assumptions are we making about the people in this story? Verse 5. And they, the men of Sodom, called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. I cannot comprehend this scene. I cannot fathom the intention of the mob. I cannot grasp why Lot would go out and try to reason with them, if we can even call this reasoning. The mob seems to assume Lot will give them what they want. Lot seems to assume he can appease them. And we are horrified that he offers his own daughters in the place of these strangers. Back in verse 2, that word lords he greeted them with, that means sirs. We don't know that he knew these were angels. I don't see... uh, He would rather offer his daughters shelter strangers than shelter his own daughters. I don't see any indication Lot expects the offer of his daughters to be rejected or for the mob to realize their wickedness and be content to leave empty-handed. And the the objectification here, it's simply wrong. Demanding or offering any person for the sexual gratification of another is wrong. It is sin. Lot may have been trying to stop one kind of sin, but his solution is also sinful. May we never do likewise. May we never intervene in a sinful situation and perpetuate sin. May we never try to stop one sin by proposing another. Think about this. How often is our response to sin more sin? How often when an injustice occurs, do we respond with thoughts, words, or actions that are unjust, that are sinful? 
How often do we counter hate with hate? Anger with anger. Cruelty with cruelty. How often do we insert ourselves into a sinful situation with the desire to bring justice and we add more sin? May we never intervene in a sinful situation and perpetuate sin. May we never try to stop one sin by committing another sin. Verse 9. But they, the men of Sodom, said, Stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Notice Lot in verse 7 called the men of Sodom, my brothers. He assumed a level of relationship with them. Here in verse 9, the men of Sodom refer to Lot as a sojourner, an outsider. They do not assume the same level of relationship with Lot that he assumes with them? Have we assumed a level of relationship and influence with people who do not see us the same way? Do we have a right understanding of our relationships with those who do not follow our God? Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Again, we see here God never assumes. He has heard the outcry. He has determined its truthfulness. And he is going to judge justly. He is not reacting emotionally or hastily. He is acting on verified knowledge and in proportion to the wrong that has been done. The angels ask about other people. Remember, Lot and Abraham, they separated because they had so many animals and so many people, the land could not support them all. But now Lot appears to have a wife, two daughters, and two soon-to-be sons-in-law. What happened to all his possessions, all his people? We can only assume. But Lot goes out and he finds his sons-in-law. So Lot's sons-in-law aren't in the house. Back in verse 4, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. If Lot's sons-in-law aren't in the house, are they in the mob? Were they blinded by the angels? In verse 14, Lot, Lot warns them and tries to convince them to flee with the family, and they laugh at him. <clears throat> How often has Lot taken God lightly that now his sons-in-law assume he is joking? How often have we taken God lightly, and now when we talk about God, people assume we're joking? How often have we failed to take God seriously, and as a result, we have led others to not take him seriously? What a sobering thought. People may not take the God of the universe seriously because I have regarded him casually. May it never be. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. 
the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. But he lingered. At this point, Lot knows these are angels. He knows the people of the city view him as an outsider, not as one of them. He knows these people were willing to commit acts of sexual violence against his guests and potentially his daughters. He knows those acts were prevented only by supernatural intervention. He knows his sons-in-law do not take him or his God seriously. He knows the city is going to be destroyed. And still, he lingers. Are you assuming anything about Lot right now? I am. Um, Angels have to take Lot and his family outside the city by force. And that is referred to so strikingly as the Lord being merciful to him. It's fascinating that God's mercy is explicitly mentioned in this text, never his anger. Yet we use this story to depict an angry God. Verse 17, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. What is Lot thinking? Lot, who so far has not appeared to make a single right decision on his own, seems to assume he has found favor with God. Clearly, Lot has no clue that any favor he has found is tied to Abraham's intercession with God. Um, Not his own merit, right? Yet Lot has the audacity to assume he has a better plan than the one the angels laid out. Lot thinks when angels tell him where he will be safe, that he will be safer somewhere else, right? How often do we counter God's perfect plan because we think we know better? Verse 21, the angel said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. I wonder how many times God has given me exactly what I've asked for when I've trusted my plan more than his. How often does God give us what we want instead of what he wants for us? Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. It strikes me what's left out here. Verses 24 and 25 give no indication God found any pleasure in this act of destruction. In artistic depictions and in our own minds, we insert a a color scheme, an emotion, a tone. We assume intense anger, maybe satisfaction or pleasure in wiping people in a place off the face of the earth. But why don't we assume God was grieved? God is holy and just. He responded to an outcry. He judged verified sin. But we have no reason to assume he did it gleefully. Sin grieves the heart of God. Human mistreatment of other humans grieves God. Yes, it angers him, but it also grieves him. What if we read this and pictured a grief-stricken God, answering an outcry, and not a vindictive God, relishing the chance to destroy people in a place? 
And then we come to yet another hard verse because we haven't had enough. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I wish I knew why she was trailing behind Lot and why he didn't seem to be keeping his family together. I, I wish I knew why she looked back. Did she hear the destruction? Did she hear screaming? Did she smell the burning sulfur? Were her daughters behind her? I don't know. And I don't know that I wouldn't have looked back to. Who am I to judge? Right? This is the only action of Lot's wife that we have in this story. And our assumptions about his character have not been spectacular. Right? He offered their daughters to the men of the city. What kind of husband was he? What did she know about his God? Was it her God or only his God? She should not have looked back. She disobeyed. She sinned. And I wish we knew more of her story. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Does Abraham know that his intercession was successful? He was told if 10 were righteous, the city would be would be spared. And he is looking down on utter destruction. What must he assume? Does he have a reason to think God had mercy on Lot and part of his family is still alive? It doesn't tell us what Abraham knew or felt that morning. It doesn't tell us when or if Abraham learned the role his intercession played on Lot's behalf. How often are we in a similar situation with less dramatic destruction? How often do we pray for someone, see the smoking ruins, and make assumptions about God's answer? Or worse, his character. How often do I stop praying because I look around and I assume I know what God has done when my view and my understanding is quite limited? What if we believed our faith and prayers on behalf of others mattered, even if we don't get to see the fruit of our faith? or have clarity on the answers. God is working beyond what we can see. What if we truly believed that? Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This feels like an ending. This feels like the reason we can assume this story stands alone and exists in isolation from the bigger story of Abraham, of God's covenant, of the Bible's narrative. But this is not the ending. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah come up many, many more times in the Bible. And the way they're mentioned might be a corrective to ways the story's often taught. Uh, this is about more than sexual sin or the sin of being inhospitable or treating, treating outsiders differently. Right? This is about more than a wrathful God. This is not a story to make us afraid, so we toe the line. If that's what we assume, we've not been reading the rest of the Bible very carefully. Over and over, especially in the prophets, God reminds his people, the descendants of Abraham, the children of the covenant, that when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities were never inhabited again. Uh, the land was never the same again. God says this repeatedly as a reminder that his chosen people are in a covenant relationship with him. And when they are willfully sinning, God wants them, warns them that the covenant does not mean they are free from consequences of sin. 
He reminds them that he is a holy God and he cannot ignore sin. Last week, we heard the reminders in Isaiah 5 and Ezekiel 16. Sodom and Gomorrah are not the worst of the worst. A loving God keeps bringing them up in the hope that his people will choose relationship with him over willful sin. Jesus himself says that when the day of judgment comes, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than many living in that day and presumably now. God never assumes. He hears the outcry against sin and he judges rightly. He removed Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the earth. He did not punish any who did not deserve it. And he never paints Sodom and Gomorrah as worse than any other place or people. In fact, he tells his own people that they have done worse. And like his people then, may we be careful not to assume that our sins are somehow less grievous to God than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. All sin grieves God, ours included. We are under a new covenant, but that is not a license to sin. And if we fixate too narrowly on one story in isolation, we can misjudge God's character. If we're only looking at Genesis 19, we can misread who God is. We know better, hopefully. Lot knew better, yet Lot lived as the main character in his own story. He lived blind to the possibility the story was not about him. He assumed he was more important to the city of Sodom than he was. He assumed he had found favor with God and did not consider that more might be at play. He assumed his plan post-Sodom was better than God's plan. Lot assumed his life was all about him. Do I miss what God is doing because I assume my life is all about me? What would it take for us to each say, it's not about me, and actually live as minor characters or probably more like extras in God's story? I can read Genesis 19 and assume that God spared Lot, who seemed to deserve death, that he did not seem to be righteous, but apparently I'm wrong. We looked last week and we're going to look again, 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 7. We read, And if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. If we read the Genesis story without Second Peter, we paint the wrong picture. Apparently there was more going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Apparently Lot was more than the caricature we turn him into if we read Genesis in isolation. And this creates tension for us. We have to remember that no story or verse in the Bible stands alone. We have to allow the totality of the text to speak. Anytime someone claims one verse is clear and definitive on its own, be wary. Right? God did not give us one verse or one chapter. He gave us 66 books written over hundreds of years to work together to tell one story, his story. And we must keep the whole Bible in mind when we zoom in on one scene lest we distort the bigger picture. We would all be in trouble if he only gave us Genesis 19. Thank goodness that's just part of the story. And despite all the assumptions that we can make about Lot, about his wife, about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, God never assumes. God knows and judges rightly. And like the people in Lot's day, not one of us can make right our own wrongs. We cannot pay for our sins. But unlike in Lot's day, God in his great mercy has now paid the price we cannot pay. 
Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead to take all our sin upon himself. He absorbed all the wrath we deserve because of our sin. If we've accepted his mercy, then we do not have to fear the punishment Sodom and Gomorrah received or Lot's wife received. God's character has not changed. He is the same God he was in Genesis. He is still the God who knows and judges rightly, who extends mercy, who answers the intercessions of his people, who never assumes. And through Jesus, we now have the ability to be in relationship with God in ways Abraham and Lot did not have. We are not following the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament. We are following the one true God who is revealed through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We are not the stars of our own stories. It's not about us. It's so much better. We who follow Jesus are commissioned as his ambassadors to communicate to the world that we are not following a God who assumes, but a God who knows and provides a way for redemption and reconciliation. And that good news is available to all. Let's pray. God, thank you that, that you do know. You know all that we don't know. You never assume. We can trust your judgment. We can trust your forgiveness. We can trust that you are the one true God, that Jesus is the only way to you. So we thank you for the mercy even that we see in a story as hard as Sodom and Gomorrah. And we thank you for the mercy you extend to us through your son. In his name we pray. Amen.